0: Well, <clears throat> I guess we can start. Uh, and uh, I want to, oh, well, I'll let the last few people take their seats. Sure. So, good morning to everyone, and uh, welcome uh, to the Atlantic Council. Again, from most of you, and as most of you probably know, I get the easy job. I do these introductory remarks, so I mean, I always have the same line. I'm Dick Morningstar, chairman of the global chairman of the Global Energy Center, and uh, I'm uh, very pleased to welcome you all this morning uh, for a conversation about power sector transformation in the developing world. Uh, this is a very obviously, a very important and timely uh, and timely topic. Uh, the Paris Agreement will enter into effect uh, on November 4th, I think sooner than most people thought, uh, and the conversation in the UN framework will turn towards the serious challenge of implementation to meet the ambitious climate uh, targets uh, that were set out <coughs> in Paris. And because most of the world's, sort of stating the obvious, I guess. Since most of the world's energy demand growth will be in developing countries, uh, we have to all be focused on how to help ensure these countries can meet the overlapping requirements of emissions reductions and managing economic growth in the face of urbanization, and population uh, increases, and this can only be accomplished uh, with serious regulatory reform and major capital investments in the power sector and non-OECD countries, which is no small task. I might just mention before uh, talking about a little bit more about what Bob is doing, uh, Bob Icord, that we also have set up just recently an energy governance. Task Force, which David Goldwyn, who's the chairman of our advisory group, uh, is also the co-chair of that uh, uh, that project, and so you'll be hearing more more about that uh, in uh, in coming months. Uh, but Dr. Robert Eichord, Bob to most of us, who I have known for and been a friend for. About 23 years at this point, 20, since I was at OPIC probably, um, has developed a, a rigorous and detailed strategy that addresses this challenge and addresses a uh, path forward. And he's going to be joined on a panel with uh, uh, an excellent panel, uh, who Tom is going to introduce, Charles Feinstein, M- Melanie Nakagawa, uh, and uh, uh, of course, and Bronco. Oh, there you are. Okay, Bronco Tirzik. So we have, you know, former World Bank person, or or World Bank person, former World Bank person, I guess, a former FERC person, uh, and a and uh, Melanie at uh, the Energy Bureau in the State Department now, who actually replaced Bob right as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Power Transformations. Maybe that'll make your introductions easier, Tom. I don't know. But in any event, <laughs> we're, very, we're very grateful uh, to Bob uh, for his commitment as a senior fellow uh, here at the Atlantic Council. Uh, in developing this strategy, uh, with future future reports uh, in the coming months. So be on the lookout for these reports, and we're going to be, although it's more a little more general, uh, the initial one. Um, we're going to be looking more specifically at countries like China, uh, Indonesia, uh, and beyond uh, in the weeks to come. Uh, and this has been this is a, a very important area of focus for the Atlantic Council as a whole, and. Uh, it, it, it really is uh, It's a privilege for us to have somebody of uh, Bob's stature uh, being part of the Atlantic Council uh, working on this project. So I'd like to remind uh, everybody that today's discussion is on the record. Uh, we're streaming live, uh, and you can join in the conversation. I should know all this by heart at this point, after having said this for 130 times on Twitter at... Uh, uh... ac global energy and the hashtag ac energy Uh, and before i give the floor to my deputy tom cunningham uh... to introduce our panelists and start the conversation let me also flag for you this and this is really going to be an important event jonathan pershing who as you all know is the special envoy for climate uh... change is going to be here tuesday at eleven thirty to be giving a major speech on U.S. plans for COP22 in Marrakesh. So I think that's something that uh, I hope you would, uh, um, hope you would all want to be at. Let me introduce Tom, who is doing a great job as deputy, has prior to that spent many years in the State Department, <coughs> including with Melanie and Bob at ENR. And uh, let me turn it over to you.
1: I should be doing that, shouldn't I? Um, It is really exciting for, for the Atlantic Council Global Energy Center and for me personally to be able to be on a panel with former colleagues and now current colleagues reincarnated. Um, To talk about these issues, Um, Melanie was mentioning before we started how exciting it is, you know, um, the need for concrete solutions in addition to all the talk and pressure and stress about these climate change issues going on. um, What Bob's work is, it really does look at concrete solutions. Where to begin? How do we do? What looks so daunting? And it's an honor for us to be doing it at the Global Energy Center, and it's an area of work we really want to expand. I think that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of climate change, in terms of international governance, in terms of the kind of dialogue, conversation, and um, influence that the Atlantic Council is known for. So I'm really excited. So let me just jump right in. I'll briefly reiterate or go a little deeper on the introductions on each of our distinguished panelists. then I'll ask Bob to give a little presentation or to explain his work. Then we'll go in with hard, hard questions and have it all figured out in 90 minutes. So, Dr. Robert Icord, Jr., Bob, is a non-resident senior fellow here at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, and he's also the CEO of Icord Ventures, LLC, where he does consulting on energy advisory services to both private and public sectors. He has a distinguished 40-year career working on international energy security development and climate change issues with the U.S. government, including at USAID, and as the first Deputy Assistant Secretary for Energy Transformation at the State Department's Energy Resources Bureau. Melanie Nakagawa, um, a good friend of the Global Energy Center, is the current Deputy Assistant Secretary for Energy Transformation at the State Department, where she leads the department's efforts to assist countries as they work towards implementing their energy commitments to address climate change, focusing on sustainable energy policy, addressing institutional reforms, and supporting business opportunities that support a global energy transition. She has a great team. They do a lot of work, a lot behind the scenes, but really interesting, technical, important things. Um, And Melanie, before she joined the uh, Energy Bureau, she was on Secretary Kerry's policy planning staff and also worked with him in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Next we have Bronco Turzic. He's a non-resident senior fellow with us as well. He's a managing director at Berkeley Research Group. He's held numerous positions in international and national energy sectors. He's participating in a royal wedding in Serbia this weekend. Glad he could spend a minute with us. Um, but he's also been a commissioner at, at FERC and um, has worked in the Wisconsin Public Service Commission or commissioner there as well and a CEO of an energy company, if not more than one. Um, We're really grateful to have Bronco on our team. And finally, last but not least, Chaz Feinstein. Feinstein or Feinstein? Sorry about that. Recent retiree as director of the World Bank's energy and extractives global practice. In this position, he managed the World Bank's combined energy mining and oil and gas investment analytical and advisory portfolio, which was valued at some $7 billion annually in loan and grant financing. No stress there. Charles' work builds on his service as a recognized energy expert and his role as the author of many vital strategy papers for the World Bank. So again, thank you all. And Bob, why don't you kick it off?
2: Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming today. It's good to see so many friends and former colleagues here today. Um, and thanks, Ambassador Morningstar, and for your support and of uh, and, uh, this a new project. And Tom, you as well. I'm really excited about it. I think it's very important. Something I wanted to do when I re- quote after after government, in terms of trying to write and, and think about all the all the lessons learned from the many years that I've worked in this field. Um, especially happy that Melanie Bronco and Chaz could. Join me for the launch of this series and, um, and look forward to their comments, because obviously all of them have a lot to say about these issues. Well, in 2015, we saw two the leaders of the world come together for two agreements, not just the Paris Agreement, but the Agreement on Sustainable Development Goals. And energy is very important to both of those. Energy was left out of the Millennium Development Goals but was incorporated into the new Sustainable Development Goals. Um, Clearly, the recently ratified Paris Agreement is historic and obviously overshadowed the other one. But the broader development context is very important as we look at these issues and, and the challenges that countries have overall in terms of improving their economic and development situations. Uh, I want to also publicly congratulate Melanie on the work that she did with the Secretary to, in a sense, and the leadership that the U.S. you know has provided in terms of making the Paris Agreement possible. It's really amazing work that, that was done. Um, and clearly now the hard work of, of really changing the policies, building the institutions augmenting the financial flows and investment flows uh, to help countries achieve the NDCs is uh, front and center. Uh, Very high priority for all of us. We know from the experience in the U.S. it's a political process, and that's no different in the developing world than it is here, as we've seen in the election. you know, and even the Holy Father is involved <laughs> in, in climate change and development issues and has had very important statements on the importance of dealing with climate. So um, development, you know, we got 7 billion people in the world now, increasing to 9 billion in 2040. Um, and. Um, 2040, the estimate is that about 7.6 billion will be in the developing world. Currently, 1.1 billion don't have electricity. And many billions more have used very little or have very little electricity or unreliable electricity. So I, think it's a por- I felt it was important in doing this paper to really emphasize the key role that developing countries will play in the future of the energy matrix here in the world. And that's going to have profound implications for Paris, despite the fact that China and India and a couple others account for over over 50% of emissions. But still, you've got a lot of countries that are growing. They're going to need huge amounts of energy if they're going to develop. And that energy needs to be clean and efficient. Um, and they're going to need a lot of investment. IEA says 12.8 trillion in power alone to 2040. So 80 to 90 percent of future energy growth is going to be in these countries, and even on electricity, there are some numbers even higher, 90 percent. So we'll see. But, um, you know, we've seen we've seen the results of pollution intensive development for many years i started this i started going to asia in 1970 boy bangkok manila and jakarta were great then <laughs> yeah, it wasn't pollution it was lots of land a few buildings and stuff like that you know and We've got to learn from the experience. But on the other hand, there are these forces, urbanization, population growth, income growth, that are all driving this demand for energy. Urbanization, urbanization, the countries in Asia and Africa are still less than 50% urban. And the projections are that even by 2040, they'll only be in the 50s. So we're we're really at an early stage in the process. But I tell you, thinking back about the 70s and where we are now and the tremendous degradation of, of the environments in these countries, it really worries me. And that's why all of this needs to come together in terms of not only energy, which is sort of a key sector that cuts across all the development equations. Um, So the strategy it's it's risky to, to generalize about developing countries, right? Because you've got India on one hand and you know Nepal and you know upper, you know, our, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, countries like that, on the other hand. Uh, But the strategy tries to present some basic propositions and basic uh, action-oriented approaches at a meta, what I call a meta-strategy level. But then we really need to unpack those elements at a country and a regional level, and that's what we want to do to try to understand the real political economy of change in these countries that's going to allow them to move toward cleaner, more efficient systems. And I think governance issues that David's working on and others, I mean, these are going to be central to this transition uh, because the energy sector governance issues, and I should say the corruption issues are very large, especially in this area. You just have to look. at. Brazil, <laughs> that's a exa- recent example. And you know we need the central challenge, power sectors that need can be engines of growth and not drags on their economy, drags on their economy, deleterious to the health and to their ecologies. And that's going to take leadership, going to take leadership And a global effort to try to um, address these in a coherent way. So the strategy has six basic objectives. I'm not going to go into all of those in any detail, but let me say a few things. We talk a lot about enabling environment, creating that environment that's going to be conducive for investment and rational allocation of resources. Um, I applaud the World Bank, Chaz and Vivian and others that have worked on this, uh, in trying to develop this tool under the RISE project, Readiness for Investment in Sustainable Energy, that that, will try to, that has developed a number of indicators related to planning, pricing, subsidies, regulatory systems, et cetera. We need something like that that really gets into the, how do we measure this process? And how do we do it like the Doing Business Report of the World Bank, if you know that report? been very, um, very important to discussions and planning around the world. Chaz may want to say more on this. So policy, regulatory, legal framework is key first objectives. And Broncos are a resident energy regulator, so he can elaborate on, on that. But I've worked a lot, including with my former longtime colleague, Bob Archer, who I hope is watching today, got up early in California, I hope, and um, to, to work on developing regulatory institutions, professional competent regulatory institutions. That often gets missed in the shuffle here, um, but in a sense, it, it is often very important not only in terms of pricing decisions and the sort of technical aspects, but in terms of the political evolution of the sectors in the countries, so that you have sources of professional stability and continuity. Investors really look for that as they look at these markets. And the Paris Agreement does emphasize capacity building, and I hope that these kinds of issues are included in, in, in that. Um, Second is sort of the broader issues of restructuring and market reform, which I won't go into. It's just quite technical in some respects, but um, is also important because we're dealing with how to restructure inefficient, often corrupt, state utilities to create, in a sense, transparent and commercially viable organizations. And that's a tough job. It's really tough. And Chaz, you may also want to talk about that. I, I have many views on this. Um, and, um, and, and that also leads then to the question of how do you design the market, which I won't go into. There's lots of issues there in terms of unbundling and market development. Uh, third is, of course, we need to ensure that the investment and the planning and the process of mobilizing uh, resources will move us in a direction of a more diversified, cleaner energy mix. And so I include not only renewables, but I think, you know, gas is going to be an important bridge in many countries, and it's high-efficient. Now, when we started, when I started this business, you had gas turbines that were, you know, systems that were 30 percent efficient. Um, now you have combined cycles that are 60 percent, and you have aeroderivative turbines that are that are 40 um, percent efficient. Uh, so it's a much better from the standpoint, even though it's not a long-term solution if we're really, See the, see the importance of a, a really, really low carbon system. But the Achilles heel that I see in this whole process is distribution, low voltage distribution. We focus a lot on generation and how to mobilize investment into generation, but we don't, and, and we're increasingly looking at high voltage transmission and how to strengthen the grid and to, and to provide better access for intermittent renewables but we're not giving attention to distribution. And that's the front lines with the consumer. You've got this enormous growth and you need di- distribution systems that are going to be able to serve these customers in a reliable way. And you need to reduce the losses, the theft, the non-payment, the you know all the funny business that goes on with regards to these distribution companies because they're the ones that are collecting the revenues for this system. So if you're going to create a commercially viable system and you're going to have the money to pay the generators, you've got to deal with distribution and how they interface with the customers. So that's objective four, uh, three. Objective four is one that's near and dear to my heart, having started this back in the 80s with uh, Jim Jeffords from Vermont, is um, electricity access and the importance of developing decentralized renewable energy technologies to, for that to meet those needs. As I said, large urban populations without electricity, rural electrification. I've done billions of dollars of grid extension. But I'm seeing now that even when we used to use NASA-designed photovoltaic systems that were terribly expensive, prohibitively expensive, now you have these. Opportunities to use solar systems and mini grids and micro grids and all these kinds of things, and for the com- and the commercial sector is going really picking this up. So governments need to facilitate that and get out of the way and not sure the standards, but make sure that they're letting this commercial process move ahead. And, um, and the World Bank's done a lot in this work, too, as co-chairman of the Sustainable Energy for All Initiative, um, and, uh, and which has given major emphasis to the goal of achieving universal electricity access by 2030. OK, um, a couple other points. So I think 10 years from now, solar systems are going to be as ubiquitous as cell phones. And of course, you need them to charge the cell phones anyway. Um, Fifth objective is regional electricity cooperation. And as power systems move toward, in one direction, bigger systems, interconnected systems, high-tech smart grids, et cetera, and on the other hand, decentralized systems, and sometimes integration with rooftop solar. Final objective, financing. How do we mobilize those resources, leverage capital, develop domestic banking system? I continue to hammer on this point of financially viable utilities. Got to have those. And that means not only tariff increases, but overall improvements of efficiency and management. And I think on the financing issue, and Melanie may want to talk about more about this, even though we are, carbon pricing is going to be critically important in the international dialogue going forward. I mean, I'm a, now that I'm not in government, I'm a fan of carbon taxes, especially in developing countries, because you don't have to deal with the bureaucratic and corruption issues. And so I think that that issue, as well as, the, as we've seen the growing, de- growing demand for green bonds and the green bond issuances in India and China and, and Mexico and other countries, is going to be really take off in the next, next couple of years. In closing, this is not rocket science, right? This is fairly straightforward nuts and bolts blocking and tackling. Um, but it takes political will, hard work, dis- well-designed international cooperation, and public-private partnerships. Um, there's a lot of initiatives on the table and they're well-meaning, et cetera. But I'm, I, I'm concerned that it's too fragmented. We need to, need to have more focus and make sure that we're dealing with these fundamental reforms in these countries, because you may be able to do guarantees that allow certain projects to go ahead. You can always do that if you, the guarantees are strong enough. But are they sustainable over time? and the institutions and the management and others that's necessary to make these systems work is, it re- is it really going to be there. Anyway, thanks a lot, and I hope you uh, you know welcome your comments and reactions to the paper. Thanks a
1: lot, Bob. Um, one question that came up for me as we were reading this throughout the process of drafting it, and now having read the final version, it strikes me that these issues in your report, while complex and spreading across multiple disciplines from regulatory frameworks, climate policy, finance, power sector market design regulation, they all seem imminently reasonable and sensible just as they seem you know, essential, almost self-evident. So it seems almost obvious there's been a glaring need for such a strategy. What made you see the need for this report or why did you undertake it? Or to ask in a slightly different yeah. nudgy way, yeah. why haven't governments or other institutions um, tried to tackle this already? And maybe they have in different ways.
2: Well, from my standpoint, it was important in looking at post-Paris implementation to have, in a sense, a better framework for dealing with the power sector. OK, so that, that was my motivation to try. I mean, you know hopefully this will influence some views. And, and it was very much oriented toward developing country governance. Um, obviously, I set out recommendations for other stakeholders in the process. From the standpoint of countries, it varies a lot. I would say that through the international efforts and involvement of the donors and banks and others with countries, most of these issues have been included in the dialogue. They're not new issues. Um, I think my reaction is that to say is that there are still, in ministries of energy, you have to remember that there was, a, in each of these countries leading up to Paris, there was important political interactions between the Ministry of Environment that was generally the lead on climate, Ministry of Energy, Ministry of Finance, all the different agencies of, of a government um, and that's one of the reasons why we have pushed in the past for low emissions development strategies to try to bring a more all of government approach to the problem. Um, <clears throat> but I think ministries of energy tend to be more, you know, less progressive. Mm-hmm. Put it that way, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that they tend to be technical. How many how many megawatts do we need? We don't need a regulator. Mm-hmm. Why do we need a regulator? So I think that may be too simplistic. But mm-hmm. that's, that's my reaction, is to say these elements are there. They're clearly there in a lot of the strategies that the World Bank and others have done. Um, maybe it brings it together in a, in a tighter way than has been done in the four. four I don't know. That's up to you to, mm. to decide.
1: Well, thanks. Melanie, um, you're <laughs> traveling around the world. You're looking at chunks of this and brought and, you know, you're, you're piecing this together in your engagement in the developing world. So how are, the, are developing countries coordinating their energy sector policies with these broader climate commitments? How, how do you see that intersection, and, and how's the uh, State Department making, helping with that process?
3: Thank you, and I think one thing you left off in, in Bob's opening Uh-oh. was I just want to congratulate Bob. Bob recently was the winner of the Lifetime Achievement Award by the Alliance to Save Energy mm. for all of his work that he's done on energy efficiency and energy issues. So, I mean, congratulations again, and it's it's really an honor to be here with this panel and, and with Bob and with you, Tom. So thank you again to the Atlanta Council for letting me be here uh, and, and participate. This report's been it's fantastic, and I thought your opening question was spot on in terms of You know this strategy and why hasn't this strategy existed yet and what can we do now going forward? And based on where I've been and the travels that we've done and just looking at the State Department as a whole, it's been really interesting about the the pivotal moment we're in in 2016 in particular. And Bob hit on it in terms of, in a post-Paris world, uh, what 2016 looks like. But in particular, starting as soon as January, you're starting to see, you know, by, by, I think, January, February, you had about 188 countries putting forward nationally determined contributions. Mm -hmm. The NDC, this so-called NDC process, simply countries putting on the table what they viewed as their ambitious or their target for a 2020, 2025, 2030 timeframe. So you're at this unique moment in time right now where there's a pull coming from countries all around the world putting out their stretched targets or wanting to do more. Mm -hmm. So up until then, the U.S. was engaging with other donors, trying to encourage them to go in this direction, trying to make the case for sustainable development, sustainable growth. And in many cases, countries understood that. But now, particularly this year, you're getting a much stronger pull because countries already now have this accountability. The targets out there was this momentum of putting forward really ambitious numbers. uh, And now it's a matter of how do you build confidence that we can get there. So as we travel, one of the things we're looking at is how are we helping countries build confidence that we can achieve these targets? Making the paper of Paris and putting that into practice, making that real, how do you show that that this is real? And if we can't do that in a a short period of time, all that excitement about Paris really falls away. So one of the mandates that I took, building on Bob's incredible foundation within the Energy Bureau as the first Deputy Assistant Secretary for Energy Transformation, he really laid the groundwork in country by country starting that conversation with what the options are, the diversified energy resources, a core tenant to what we do in the State Department is broadening the aperture by which we view energy security. It's not just the traditional view of energy security, oil and gas, but it's exactly what is in this report. It's a much expansive view. And in particular, in the last five years since the Bureau was created, the precipitous decline in prices of renewable energy, and also the health impacts from more traditional energy resources becoming increasingly more apparent. More cities in India are becoming on the top 20 most polluted cities of the world, um, as well as 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 you know about the Chinese air pollution issues. Mm -hmm. So you've got a really nice storm of political momentum behind us this year that's getting countries that we talk to not only asking us for the diversified uh, solution set, but where can U.S. leadership play? Where's our comparative advantage from the United States in supporting these countries? And in terms of whether or not countries are now coupling their energy commitments or their en- climate commitments, there really isn't this firewall anymore. You know, As I mentioned, energy security is a much more diversified story. Mm-hmm. And part of energy security is is partially about the low carbon transformation. In some countries, that is their energy security. hundred percent is the transformation to a low carbon society. So with that in mind, then that is part of your climate strategy as well. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a low carbon energy strategy or a climate strategy, the secretary is, you know, is well known for talking about you know, the way to deal with climate change or the solution to climate change, a smart energy policy. And that's absolutely true. And of course, you know, this is now my eighth year working for the secretary, so I think I do speak with his voice. <laughs> More so than probably my own voice at this point, um, but the the key aspect there is if we work, you know, country by country or region by region, trying to build the enabling environment for the smart energy policies, you are going to see the climate commitments be realized. Mm-hmm. A couple of examples of where countries are really coalescing. One example would be in Morocco. You know, Morocco is host of this year's climate conference, so already the international light has shined on them. But they're a country that has these NOR projects, the NOR-123, 1, 2, 3, these large concentrated solar projects, requires a massive amount of private investment. But Morocco's been able to achieve that. They've got financing terms that are akin to countries like France. And so you've got a country like Morocco that is, you know, Uh, on the African continent, attracting massive private investment for large renewable energy resources, and that's part of their energy strategy, it's part of their climate strategy because it's low carbon growth, and something that they could potentially export south uh, Mm. through the rest of the world. So that's just one example of of a country that's really done a great job of marrying the energy aspirations that are for a low low carbon world with their climate commitment at a really pivotal moment when the world's really looking at that region in particular and, and how they're moving forward.
1: Thanks, Melanie. No, you're right to point to the merging of energy security priorities with broader climate goals. And the work you do is that intersection. And, um, and I think that Bob's report shows you know, some of those real specific ways we can move forward, one of which is regulation, Bronco. Um, the how do you, how do you um, let's, where do you begin? Right, You've been working on regulatory frameworks in the United States in developing countries all over the place. As a former regulator, what are some of the essential elements in creating effective commissions in developing countries? How do you, how do, you do this, especially where there's so many governments that want to have a lot of state control and issues of sovereignty? How do you get free market access? How do you, where do you start the conversation?
4: Well, I start by talking to Bob Icord. Uh, this uh, report uh, <laughs> has the right policies, Yay, proven practices, and it's got achievable standards. And Bob Icord and I, and Dr. Robert Ar- Bob Archer, worked in the 1990s on the emerging former communist countries in Central and Eastern Europe, where they transformed from a state owned enterprise into. Uh, either privatization, uh, competitive markets, unbundling, uh, all of those Eastern European commissions, all of them, 15, 16, were set up by Bob ICORD through USAID and Bob Archer through USAID programs. That ought to be acknowledged. The the Eastern European Regulators Association, the ERRA, which I had the pleasure of working on as a FERC commissioner, that was ICORD and Archer, and that organization is viable. It is now training regulators in Asia and Africa and so we have uh, we know what needs to be done and and we know that the first thing happen is the 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 key is government the government has to start By establishing the structure of the industry, do they want monopoly or will they have competition? And secondly, who should own the assets? Only government can decide that. Will there be public ownership, private ownership, or mixed ownership? And by the way, in the United States, we have mixed ownership. Tennessee Valley Authority looks just like ESCOM. It's a state-owned enterprise, Bonneville Power Authority, looks like, you know, a Russian uh, state-owned enterprise. 15% of Americans get their electricity from a municipal or cooperative system, not from investor-owned utilities. Mm-hmm. So there's room for both private capital and public capital needs, but government has to set that up. And of course they have to set up a regulator. Mm-hmm. My fundamental premise is we know that re- that good regulation will bring private capital. We know that because it's happened in this country. It's happened in Western Europe. Uh, and it's happening in Eastern Europe which has made that transition and we know what the principles of good regulation are and they're very simple you need an independent regulatory agency independent from the daily political pressures of an elected parliament not independent from government but independent from parliamentary daily pressure you need an expert staff fully paid fully trained that staff and those regulators need adequate resources and funding for training for software for travel for investigations and then they can build public confidence. How do you build public confidence? Very simply, you have a transparent process which tells the public, this is how we got that order. Secondly, you issue orders in a timely manner. I was CEO of a utility for five years. I will tell you, I would rather quickly have a bad decision than drag me out five or six years where circumstances change and I get the decision I wanted but it's too late to act on it. So timeliness. Secondly, there has to be a balance the public has to perceive that their interests were fully reviewed and in the and in the explanation of the order that has to be there and, and the perception has to be the regulator is balanced there has to be judicial or some other review available on principles of law and facts there must be some stability that is if the same regulator gets the same request from different entities with all the same conditions you would think that the final order ought to be similar. Or there has to be very de- detailed explanation why in this case we in- imposed a different order than in another case. And of course the independence still has to be there. The entity, the decision making has to be based on the law and on the facts and not on political whims and sometimes not even on, on the popular whims uh, whims of the public. Uh, in Africa, uh, my colleague uh, Paul Balanoff wrote that the average uh, unserved family that doesn't have electricity is using four liters a month of kerosene, which is about a dollar ninety for liter. So the poorest of poor families with with four liters is spending seven dollars and fifty cents a month at fifty cents a kilowatt hour, which is a very high rate. That buys you fifteen kilowatt hours a month. That's a that's a single light bulb. Uh, or it's a cell phone charger or something. You know, 72% of people in Sub-Saharan Africa uh, do not have access to uh, have cell phones. Only 27% have electricity service. Well, uh, electricity service is provided by state-owned monopolies. So obviously, they failed. Cell phones are provided by independent entrepreneurs licensed by the government. And those cell phone operators have to figure out not just where people are going to charge their cell phones, but those towers have to run 24-7. So somehow cell phone operators have figured out how to get into the most rural parts of Africa, a cell phone tower power 24-7 at a reasonable cost. The solution might be in looking at the private sector. Thanks.
1: Easy. Chaz, <laughs> for you. Um, what was the number you cited, $12 trillion of investment needed?
2: $12.8 trillion.
1: Yeah. How do we get there? From your investment, global finance expertise, how do we move the dollars to make this happen?
5: How do we get there? <clears throat> by putting in place the kind of policy framework that Bob's outlined in his paper. Okay. So this being unusual times, I'm going to express my support for Bob's uh, train of thought by taking a page from Donald Trump.
6: <laughs> um,
5: let me let me state Security? the following. No, the <laughs> importance of power sector reform for clean energy development is like a woman's best line. It cannot be overemphasized. <laughs> it can, but I think you know what I mean, what the heck. Um, you probably intuitively know or have seen graphs like this, which refer to what Melanie talked about, and that is the tremendous cost progress of clean energy, over the, even over the last two years. This is from Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And I'm sorry the folks on the web probably can't see it. But the blue line shows, over the approximately last 18 to 20 months, the world-beating prices for solar photovoltaic bids. And they've gone down from as recently as January 2015, $0.06 cents a kilowatt watt- hour was world-beater, now, the world beater price is 2.9 cents a kilowatt an hour. And the trend is really impressive and inspires hope. But for me, what's even more interesting is to think about the dispersion of the results behind that. And let me give you an idea. Chile recently came in at 2.9 cents, Dubai at 3 cents, mm-hmm. Mexico, these are all solar PV bids, by the way, Mexico, 3.5. Peru, 4.8, South Africa, 6.4, India, Karnataka state, 7.2, Jamaica, 8.5, and then recently in Zambia we've seen a progression from 10.6 to 7.8, and most recently, 6 cents. It's interesting to think why, what accounts for this dispersion or, or variance in results around the world. After all, the technology is basically the same. Uh, Is it the solar resource? I don't think so. Uh, Jamaica doesn't have three times less sunshine than Chile, for example. Is it scale economies? Not really. Solar PV, you sort of exhaust scale economies after a couple of megawatts. Is it the efficiency and competitiveness of the auction mechanism? I think certainly that's behind the macro trend as we see countries go from feed-in tariff regimes To more and more competitive tenders, and that's providing competitive pressure. But after all, for example, what ESCOM's implementing is about as well designed and competitive as I've seen, and the results are good, but not world beating. Is it cost of financing? That's certainly a large factor, particularly renewables, highly capital intensive, very expensive to finance. So, for example, we see Mazdar in Dubai uh, as back, is backed and owned by the Abu Dhabi sovereign wealth fund, and they can offer financing that even beats commercial banks, which at least partially explains the excellent results in Dubai. But I think if I had to sum up what is the largest influence in the, in, in the dispersion of results, it would have to be exactly the, the enabling environment that Bob talks about particularly the perception or actual risks faced by private investors and how those risks are laid off and mitigated. And here I'm talking about the macroeconomic environment and its stability, the perception of the stability of the political environment, and the commitment to an energy policy, a clean energy policy, respect for contract law, independence of regulation, off-taker risk. Renewable energy IPP, will I get paid for my power deliveries? And that in turn depends on the financial buoyancy of the sector. Price reflective tariffs, can you bill and actually collect on the electricity that's provided? And that gets down to Bob's description of distribution as the cash register of at least the power sector. So I would say that all, particularly these latter influences, I can't prove it, but this, to me, is what's really behind whether countries really progress down that clean energy cost ladder. And I think it's absolutely crucial for the success and implementation of the Paris Accords and our ability to combat climate change. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. Melanie,
1: coming to you, looking at this investment side, I know there's the Green Climate Fund. I know there's other kinds of private investment Tools or mechanisms. Can you explain a little bit about what the United States is doing in that regard? I know that some of your projects... sure.
3: You know what's been really interesting to see from the hearing from the panel and looking at the report is really this was uh, whether intended or not also a really good blueprint and and a good example of where U.S. government and where government ministries really play a role. Uh, the joke, I not really a joke, but the the kind of catchphrase I tend to use is that you know, in the investment place, you really want to see patient capital, right? Especially in a lot of these markets, you're gonna need to see that. And that's really where patient diplomacy plays a role. Mm -hmm. And this is really the bread and butter of what the State Department does, the the creation of the Energy Bureau that Bob was part of, this idea of creating energy diplomacy within the foreign ministry. As Bob mentioned, the Department of Energy, more technical in many ways. So now here's an opportunity to bring your national security interests, your foreign policy interests, and energy being really a linchpin to much of that work, being a focus of why the bureau, the bricks and mortar, not just a special lawn boy, a a small shop, but really a full-scale bureau within the State Department to engage in these issues on a day-to-day basis. And the reason for that is exactly for the matter of building the enabling environment. On a day-to-day basis, working with, you know, bilaterally or with regional collections, with those countries, with those governments, to ensure that we get those policies right, to get the reforms right, because that's really the foundation to which investment will come. I'm pretty bullish on the renewable energy market, obviously, but I also am bullish on the fact that if there's a good project, investment will flow. And so to that end, you have different vehicles that are Currently, actively, and a great example is the Green Climate Fund. The Green Climate Fund just, what was it, a few weeks ago reached a new milestone at its 14th meeting with the approval of 745 million in funding proposals out of the 788 million submitted. So that's about 10 projects and programs approved to have support of a total value of 2.6 billion uh, helping 27 countries across the world reduce their emissions and adapt to the impacts of climate change. The GCF has marked about two billion for private risk fund for climate mitigation and it's looking for other financial institutions to operate operate that specific mechanism. And as a result, the GCF funding to date is primarily in the form of grants, but Mm -hmm. it's also gonna have this private sector facility. And for this year in particular, it's looking on track to achieve its aspirational goal of about 2.5 billion in concessional funding this year. So the Green Climate Fund's a great example about a fund that's been established to achieve the two degree mission that's out there mm-hmm. and also trying to work and capitalize private markets. From a State Department perspective, not only is it our engagement with Treasury and the USG with, as a whole in the Green Climate Fund, we're also working bilaterally on the, exactly the right type of investment climates in, in, in various countries. A great example in my mind is a country that was started, uh, our engagement started several years ago and it was India. What makes India so interesting and it's such an interesting moment for, for me in particular, India needs about $100 billion of investment uh, to hit their clean energy commitments. India is incredibly attractive because they put out from a political will perspective, again, we talk about this being founded in where's the political will. India put forward a 175 gigawatt target for wind and solar alone by 2022. Incredibly ambitious incredibly ambitious that everyone's looking at that target. You can't help but not stare at this at this mm-hmm. target, figure out how do we get there. Mm-hmm. But in the investment climate is really difficult. You're not seeing deals at the gigawatt scale or the type of investment flowing for precisely the reasons why Charles mentioned, right? The off-taker risks, the concerns about just transactional costs. So with that, the government, US government and the Indian government decided to work collaboratively through the US Clean Energy Finance Task Force. This to me is a real indicator of where the US government and where governments really play best when it comes to enabling the environment for finance to flow and to attract this finance. The way the finance task force works is it's government to government task force with a private sector advisory body or a body that is, uh, the Clean Energy Finance Facility, the CEF, which operates somewhat in parallel to the task force. Mm -hmm. The CEF, which is made up of U.S. and Indian companies, it's now expanded to include law firms and other types and developers and banks. They've provided recommendations on what are some of the foundational problems with scaling investment in India. And this gets a bit boring and wonky, but to this crowd of energy experts, you you all appreciate what these things are. It's as easy as, and I say easy in 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 a slightly offhanded way, but it's easy as, looking at standardized transaction documents for bidding, Uh, looking at an off-taker, some sort of payment security mechanism for off-taker risks, and those are for utility scale. And then when it comes to the solar rooftop, which is a 40 gigawatt goal from the Indian government, you're looking at some sort of warehousing facility Mm -hmm. to be able to scale and aggregate those resources. So we decided to tackle those three first. So in a government-to-government dialogue that we meet several times a year, we've been working in partnership with the Indian government who's putting forward model guidelines, draft guidelines, on a, the first was uh, model guidelines on bidding processes for renewable energy. The second one was guidelines on a payment security mechanism for off-taker issues. If we could get those two right, that starts to increase more attractiveness of the Indian market, more scalable finance. And because we meet several times a year and the Indian government's been releasing different drafts of this document, we can see the political buy-in from the Indian government to really embrace these reforms and really move in lockstep uh, with what the private sector is advising, with what the banks are advising, to really make these investment vehicles bankable. Uh, Some of these vehicles, like the payment security mechanism, has existed already in the books in India for a couple of years, but wasn't widely utilized because it was too opaque. Mm -hmm. So now we're working with rating agencies and banks to provide them real-time guidance to say, what is it going to take for this to be uh, a true credit enhancement, and what are some of the changes that need to be made to really ensure that, that developers and others can take advantage of this mechanism. Uh, the proof will be basically in terms of how utilized these mechanisms are
1: mm-hmm. and
3: how many faster transactions we get into the system, but that's an example where I really like this example because it's working in partnership and it includes throughout the process, it's not just a report that, you know, we hope the government will will implement or, you know, advice that they hope, but it's actually one that we work with them. And we're doing a similar approach uh, in China in terms of helping them reach their 20% non-fossil target by working to create a market for green and renewable energy grid integration into their transmission system. They have an abundance of every type of energy, uh, but that's also leading to a curtailing of you know, really important wind energy, for instance, in the Inner Mongolia area. So how can we work with the Chinese government and provide you know, coordinated recommendations that they can implement in real time to ensure that they can get more renewable energy into their transmission system and into their grid to reach this target that they have. And the last I would just mention on on Africa, in particular through Power Africa, uh, one of the key things we're learning through that process is that it really is the enabling environment that is Uh, that's the sticking point for many of these transactions Mm -hmm. from going at a rapid pace or a faster pace. Mm -hmm. And what we can do there in terms of scaling finance is by working with utilities, working with regulators, we have a long history of already doing this, and now we're looking to expand that and bring it to the CEO and the C-suite level. Mm -hmm. How do you engage African CEOs and utility regulators with our utility regulators and CEOs to expand how they operate and ensure that more financial resources can flow, better operational management, and more efficiencies. So it's been a really, and again, like as I mentioned at the start, uh, these types of, this type of roadmap is precisely how we are trying to deploy our work this year so that eventually the, the, the ground is softened for more private sector investment to flow into many of these areas, whether through multilateral vehicles like the Green Climate Fund, or even just through bilateral assistance, or frankly, in the day, this is private sector driven mm-hmm. and private sector led. So what is it going to take? With a little bit of public sector resources, how do you bring in uh, the real momentum of the private sector? It's good, you know, the good news is that there's plenty of small public sector vehicles the U.S. government in particular has. The Overseas Private Investment Corporation being really one of the, the most, the premier institution of putting uh, some public sector capital in but leveraging an, an immense amount of private sector capital uh, towards renewable energy and happy to say that the OPIC board earlier this year approved another billion dollars this year alone for renewable energy. Uh, they're on track to do it again. So there's, you know, US government skin is in the game, yeah. but frankly, we also need the policy metrics as well.
1: Thanks, Melanie. Look, I've got my head spinning with questions. I wanna, we have about 30 minutes left, and I wanna open it up for audience questions. I wanna sort of throw out one more balloon or grenade, I don't know. what The elephants in the room is, is uh, you, you know, Bob, you talked about the, the need for, Or essential elements in this transition would be um, renewables, energy efficiency, and natural gas. Well, what about coal? Um, You know, we've got a lot of existing infrastructure, and and um, that is inefficient. But also, there are a lot of plans to invest in new coal. And then another question is, what's the role for nuclear in all of this? So anyone? Bronco, you want to take it first? Yeah.
4: First, uh, stepping over into Melanie's domain, very, very carefully, uh, this, Secretary uh, Kerry and Melanie have been dealing with a world where in the OECD countries, uh, we all have electrified. And if uh, all the solar panels in those countries were hit with, uh, with the malware or something didn't operate, the lights wouldn't go out. Uh, their issue is decarbonization. Mm-hmm. In the United States, we are building solar. We are putting in wind. We're uh, hopefully doing hydro. We're looking at nuclear from the standpoint of we want to reduce CO2 emissions. The lights are on because they're two-thirds uh, coal and uh, natural gas. We, that's fine, but we, we need to reduce CO2. So in, our, in the OECD countries, electricity usage actually coming down slowly, and decarbonization is what's driving the push toward solar, toward efficiency, toward all these things which will improve, uh, uh, mitigate, hopefully, the climate change problem. In the underdeveloped world, we've got 7 billion people in the world. Only 2 billion have adequate electricity. Another 2-point-something billion, the lights go out during the day. Yeah, there's a wire in Afghanistan, there's a wire in in some parts of India, there's a wire in some parts of Africa, but the lights go out. Those people have to live with intermittent. And 1.4 billion have no electricity at all. So for the developing world, they've got the dual problem of electrification and without carbonization. Mm and uh, the, the role of coal in those developing, and, and then doing it economically. Those, those countries want their people to have electricity. Uh, uh, India, which you mentioned, I've seen reports, India suffers a minus 2% on their GDP due to inadequate electricity service. That is, their, their GDP would be 2% higher if the lights would stay on in many, uh, many of the cities. And so the, the, the balancing act is, in the developing world, how do you electrify while also decarbonizing? And coal, I believe the World Bank uh, approved one coal-fired facility in South Africa, on the Under the analysis that a, that single central coal station with scrubbers and current technology would be less polluting than the millions of open campfires uh, that were that were uh, people were burning fifty percent of the world's population every day still burns dung or wood or something. and so we uh, the, the health hazard is mothers, particularly mothers with children uh, burning in open fires breathing in the fumes. That can be eliminated in some areas, arguendo, with a coal-fired power plant. So there may be a limited role for coal in some of those places to get them to electrify, but it's a public policy discussion. What is more important, what is more critical for that government, to electrify or to meet uh, CO2 and other emission standards? And that's a political decision with costs and other factors. Mm
1: -hmm. Anyone else want to jump in, Bob? Question about nuclear as well.
4: Uh, Okay.
2: well, the, the trends, especially, I mean, the trends have been positive with regards to new generation. In last, in last year, over 50% of new generation was in renewables. So that was an amazing sort of number. Uh, a lot of it is accounted for by China and India and the big ones. Coal use, though, I was always sort of chagrined when I went around Asia you know, because Philippines developing coal, Thailand's developing coal, Malaysia's developing coal, Indonesia, of course, is continuing on a major coal programs, Pakistan, Bang- even Bangladesh is looking at imported coal. So, I mean, Asia was the area that, not only in terms of current emissions, but in future emissions, because of the extensive orientation toward coal investment, that was really worrying me in terms of, of, of the uh, emissions issue. Um, and, you know, in talking with the ministers and leaders in the country, their answer was simple. It's cheaper. We can import coal from Indonesia for a fraction of what we would pay if we had to put in the alternative. Now, that's changing, as we've talked about. How, to, how, to, how can we get them to understand that there is, in a sense, a real economic advantage, especially if you're looking at in installations that are going to be in place for 30 years or more. Because that's the problem. You're locking in the, with these coal plants, even if they're supercritical and ultra-critical, which is basically what the Japanese and Chinese are trying to peddle. Even in Pakistan, they're talking about building a supercritical coal plant. Um, and so that. I mean, I think Melanie can talk to this. There had been some progress with regards to OECD in terms of government financing for this. So from the supply side, though, we do face, in a sense, aggressive export policies from the Chinese policy development banks. And we'll get into more of that in the papers, subsequent papers. Um, you've had the export credit agencies, from. Japan, South Korea, and others that have been supporting and providing, along with engineering and other packages, the financing for the country. So from the supply side, you've got that incentive. Then from the demand side, you have the incentive, one, that they need the electricity, and two, that they see it as cheaper. Uh, Now I think Asian Development Bank, World Bank, others have been trying to look and help them look at this calculus more carefully in terms of the externalities, the climate issues, how it relates to their NDCs. And so that's part of the dialogue that's going to be critical in the future in terms of working with those countries that, that have that, um, and, and in terms of what is this the, these least cost, low carbon options that are going to make the most sense, especially from a longer term perspective, and not just the immediate aspect of, yeah, the coal is real cheap.
1: Thanks, Bob. Okay, let's open it up to audience questions. We've got two runners, Jacob and Lexi, with mics. When I call on you, just don't forget to um, say your name and your affiliation. David Goldwyn, you get to go first.
7: Great, thanks. David Goldwyn, Atlantic Council. Uh, congratulations, uh, Bob, on a terrific report, and thanks to all of you for your, uh, for your service in this area. I'm a little bit worried about whether or not we're scaled to provide the kind of help we need to countries to meet their Paris commitments. Mm. The political challenge um, of dealing with heritage, energy infrastructure, and introducing market pricing is huge. Mexico did it, but it was a political miracle. Japan is building greenfield coal and struggling with how to build a capacity market. And on the technical assistance side, that job of figuring out how to change your market or build a regulator is kind of a generational task. So the State Department has its programs. The World Bank has some programs. But I guess my, my question is um, really at a technical level, should we be looking at something which is, you know, exponentially larger through the IEA or through IRENA or hosted by the World Bank to provide the kind of assistance countries need to figure out how to implement their NDCs? And then politically, I mean, I, I agree, This is, it's a top-town job to try and overcome your kerosene importers or whoever else is making money off the sector. But is that, a, is that a bilateral job? Is that a G20 ongoing job? But how do you scale that sustained political support like we've done with, say, Ukraine, but it's a, it's a full-time job? Um, my, my worry is, without scaling both of those up, the likelihood of countries actually meeting their NDCs, if in fact they represent their actual plans, is is not high. we
3: doing one at a time, we're
1: doing? I'm do, sorry. We're
3: doing group questions, or one at a time?
1: As you, I, I'm happy to take a couple more questions, or if you'd like to jump in, go sure, right I ahead. Sure, I
3: could at least just start on that that issue right there. A few things are, are have moved this year in particular that I just wanted to highlight. One is on the donor coordination front, and the example I would give is what's happening in the Caribbean the Caribbean's another area where, to your point, how do you go to scale? How do you make sure, is it just, you know, the US government alone, um, I'm definitely not Pollyannish to think that we can save the world, right? And, and nor do we have the resources uh, or, and of course we'd love Congress to provide us those resources, but that's not looking likely in the near future uh, for significantly scaled up uh, financial support on that front. So as a result, uh, one of the issues we've done is in the Caribbean in particular, Uh, Smaller countries, lower capacity in terms of just being able to have a French delegation come in one week, then the Italians the next week, the U.S. the next week, while also trying to do their day jobs. So through the Caribbean Energy Security Initiative, we created a donor coordination mechanism, and I'm going to look at the acronym because it's a tough one. It's the Caribbean Sustainable Energy Roadmap and Strategy, CERMS. Well, acronym right there. Um, And it's a mechanism for donor coordination in the Caribbean. And what's exciting about this mechanism is exactly to that point, which is if you really want to go to scale, it can't be the US coming in with theirs and the British coming in with theirs and the French coming in with theirs, but rather let's look, let's all meet collectively look at that country, look at that island and say, where's our comparative advantage? And then deploy a much more holistic approach across various country governments into that mechanism. So CSERMs would be that you know a mechanism for the Caribbean region in particular. You mentioned IEA, IRENA, and others. IRENA's well. IRENA's now, I think, at the five-year mark of their time as they look at their next roadmap. A key issue the US is asking is, how can IRENA, who's done fantastic road mapping on a country or regional basis, how do you actually help you know, IRENA brings together the financing community, the bank, uh, the international finance institutions, donor countries, developing countries. Is it the role of IRENA, for instance, to walk with the government bringing all those resources to bear to say, this is how you now implement, this is what it takes to implement. IEA has also now moved to more of an implementation and embracing more of clean energy aspects and energy efficiency. So potentially is is the IEA is another question. So the venue, uh, the good news is that the venue exists. There are venues that are already global in nature, focused on implementation or focused on helping countries uh, do more work at home. But the mechanics yet have not fully been worked at. So I think there's, I'm sure, I'm not sure if next uh, the next paper coming out of uh, the Atlantic Council might be in this regard. But there's an opportunity there of how one actually works at a country by country basis. So it's not 18 countries targeting one in an uncoordinated fashion. I think there's an opportunity to do that. But also there's other aspects too, which is um, again, if there's more transparency in the system, some of that corruption comes to bear. You know, the whole uh, the whole uh, analogy of is that sunshine is the best disinfectant, I think, is, is what the, uh, the cliche is. But those types of opportunities, too, which we're doing across the board on governance reforms, but bringing to bear more transparency in the system, again, is also uh, these smaller changes are what would also help go to scale you know, to, in order to get to the, to the level we need and, and to answer your question.
1: Thanks, Melanie. Um, I know Jonathan Katz, you had a question. Go for it, and then we'll come just wanted to uh, uh,
8: congratulate you on a great report and uh, for all the work that you've done. Um, my name is John Katz. I'm the Deputy Assistant Administrator for Europe and Eurasia at USAID. And so Bob's work across the region is, is still ongoing, uh, including on legal, regulatory, and a number of other areas, including of a lot of what's been discussed today. Um, and so, on one hand, I want to just respond to David um, uh, Goldwyn on the on Ukraine. There is an ongoing effort to work with them on legal regulatory USAID has a program will be a program that's going to be. We've been working with them on uh, independent regulator laws, electricity market laws. Uh, we have donor coordinating meetings with the EU, uh, IMF, World Bank on the ground. It's very much coordinated, and USAID. I think in Bob's leadership in I think Bob Archer, who's, uh, who's, who's watching in, and we also have the head of our energy program here, Steve Burns, who's sort of carrying on the tradition. So USAID has a history of playing that role on the ground, providing technical assistance, uh, the type of technical assistance that uh, creates the enabling environment. So it exists, and I'm glad that, that uh, Melanie, who's been a great leader in, in addressing these issues, mentioned that. Uh, but I think she also touched on the point of resources. And uh, uh, I know in the report it's hard to, to, to figure out the exact number of how much money, but I can tell you that it, the, the resources for technical assistance and policy assistance across the board to help countries achieve what Bob is, has laid out doesn't, you know, isn't where it should be. And if you had that, we have, within the U.S. government, the technical capability to work with countries globally like we're doing in, with Power Africa through USAID, through partners across the U.S. government, including the Department of Energy, um, ENR, State Department, to actually do these things. And I wanted to just talk about that, let you know that there's actually these programs ongoing and that one of the things that you really need within these governments is high level commitment. And oftentimes, and that means across the board, but it doesn't necessarily lie always in ministries of foreign affairs. It lies within the relevant ministries, it lies with the prime minister, it lies with the president of the country. And as someone who's worked on both the macroeconomic side in Ukraine uh, and the connection between energy, you see that you have to uh, keep engaging, you have to use the leverage, um, and that usually means holding them accountable for reforms. It took the Ukrainian government, I don't know, about. I don't know how many years to pass an independent regulator law, which they just did, <laughs> but now comes the hard part of implementation. And I think um, this is, uh, Melanie said it right, sometimes we think about energy security as sort of oil and gas, um, or some you know pipelines, pipeline diplomacy, which is incredibly important, and it is part of energy security. But the work that Bob uh, ICOR did on the ground for many years is kind of the meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult. And it needs sustainable support over the long run for it to work and have an impact on energy security. So my question to Bob, and I, and I think Europe is a great example of where you have regional energy cooperation both in the EU market but also through the energy community, community. which I know right. you helped uh, and others so helped much. set up. Right. Um, it's really, a, I think, a, a phenomenal example of, of you know, of, of how you can create the, uh, body to address legal regulatory, while at the same time helping unbundle markets and uh, move these economies and energy security forward. It's a little bit more of a comment, but I wanted to ask Bob how you know how he views sort of the uh, the work of the energy community, but also really I think you struck too is that the U.S. government to have needs to have maybe. Uh, a a game plan that really looks more expansively, and I wanted to get your thoughts on both the resource needs. What do you envision we need, um, and what role should we play um, at the country level on legal regulatory, and how can we better do what we've already been doing for 20-plus years, but how can we do it better?
2: Well, a lot there. I, I will say just a few things. One is the resources The resources that we're devoting to these issues are not commensurate with the importance that we're attaching from a policy standpoint Mm. and i think raj increased it with power africa and got strong obama and white house support for that 300 million dollars a year we'll we'll see if the congress continues to support that but you know you can do a lot with that now i think the issue is Do we have the strategy that addresses, as Melanie says, the increasing realization that you've got to deal with these enabling environment and and regulatory issues? I think uh, the transaction approach, I think, to some extent, went a little bit too far in the power Africa. I can say that now that I'm left. There needs to be more balance. That is, one, you need to get the investors because they will show you what are the bottlenecks in the investment environment. But at the same time, you need the, you need the institutions. And that takes time to develop. There are short-term, long-term aspects of that. So, that, so we need more resources. And I think that there are lots of lesson, positive lessons from Power Africa for other regions. Be nice to have some resources of that level devoted to the Caribbean and, and Latin America, Central America and stuff like that. Um, And then just quickly, Tom, um, in the energy, in the European situation, one, we did have the resources, thanks to Dick and Carlos and others, we had the resources for a number of years to deal with these issues. And it took us 10 years to do it. But as Ronko said, we created the structures together with the World Bank, e- 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 EBRD, EBRD uh, EU, et cetera. And we had regular, very intensive coordination with regards to how to address the whole range of issues in the restructuring, reform, privatization, regulatory development of these countries. And we had a budget maybe of between 5 and $10 million a year per country to work on this. Okay. Even in Power Africa, you don't have that. Um, and 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 I think that it's the, the last thing I would say is that I think one of the lessons that we learned is that it's very important at the country level with ex, with sort of higher level involvement, especially at a high level, um, like you know, vice president of the EBRD or something like that, to have uh these dialogues with the senior leadership of the country and also to have forums where you have both the public and the private sector and the financial sector together i think you were you were mentioning that uh, you know to try to really have this dialogue listen you need this investment if you're going to make this transition and these are the things that you need to do to get that investment because you've got to overcome the risk problem that is perceived by investors and financiers.
1: Thanks, Bob. Okay, we're running out of time, um, but I want to see a show of hands. And I think what I'll ask is that everyone will take a chunk of questions and then go at those. So you, sir, Ambassador Morningstar,
6: and you, ma'am. Thank you, Uh, my name is Paolo Cozzi, I'm from the Center for Clean Air Policy. My question is on intra- and intergovernmental uh, cooperation and coordination in affecting this energy transformation. So, you know, all the countries have NDCs, essentially. You know, and we also we have a lot of innovation at the global scale. The uh, GCF has also been moving forward. Um, at the same time, you know, the GCF has had challenges getting the sort of pipeline of real projects that it needs to get moving. Um, I was recently actually participating in a Power Africa workshop. And it was a room with a lot of actually great and really sharp regulators and people in that country's energy sector. And when it came time to giving my presentation, I asked, you know, who knows what this country's um, NDC is? And they didn't realize that they had an NDC. (laughs) And then I said, okay, well. um, You're trying to do a lot of really ambitious things in renewables and in energy. So you know there is this international global fund that is designed to help developing countries with these sorts of things. No one in the room had heard of that either. So what efforts are going on and need to happen in order to really lead, make the NDCs actually into this driving force that they really should be at the domestic level? Thanks.
1: Thanks. Ambassador Morningstar, take your question now.
0: You. I want to go back I want to go back Tom to your elephant in the room when you talked about coal and it is scary when you look at some of the energy outlooks which predict greater considerably greater usage of coal in many countries looking out uh, 20 and 30 years. So the the one thing that has not come up today are new technologies. And so uh, the question that I would ask, would it be wise U.S. government policy to, assuming the resources, to have crash, really crash research programs on uh, uh, clean coal technology, clean gas technology, small module nuclear reactors, uh, to... To, to work to get them uh, commercially viable uh, to be useful in those parts of the world that uh, are g- going to have more, you know, con- continuing serious problems like China,
1: India, and other countries. Good question. And, and you, ma'am, please.
0: Good morning, Loana Martin from Squire Patent Boggs. I wanted to ask you. You mentioned a few of the characteristics for financeability. Uh, among them, I've recognized them all, but I wanted to ask you specifically about uh, long-term PPAs and whether that's something that the uh, col- your collective efforts is something that's going to be promoting, and also with respect to currency pegging PPAs and at the revenue generation contracts to the U.S. dollar. In our experience, we've seen that that's where the instability comes, where you don't have a long-term PPA and you don't have uh, a revenue that's, that's a guaranteed revenue stream that's pegged to a stable currency. We saw that in Brazil. Um, I think Argentina's trying to, do, trying to correct what Brazil's had problems with. Uh, so I wanted to see if that was a collective effort, and that's something that's going to be promoted as well from the U.S. State Department.
1: Okay, that's a swath of questions from how do we get the Political will built up with by getting the information out there. How do we, or is there, what's the role of innovation? And is there a need to drive research in addition to the other kinds of funding support that we're talking about? And also looking at some of these specific PPA issues. Anyone? Anyone? Sure,
3: I'll just um, sort of knock through them. On the uh, intra enter, It's a great question because it's actually something that it's one of the, so we've been assembling within the Energy Bureau over the past five years, what are the tools and our toolbox of policy, regulatory, financial, legal uh, aspects of engagement through diplomacy that have worked, that haven't worked, why they haven't worked, and trying to go through sort of on a case-by-case basis, assembling really what's the best set that's out there. One of them that continues to rise to the top of the toolbox is our convening power and our ability to bring through both in terms of US government, this administration in particular has been a whole-of-government approach. You hear that message a lot. Um, a lot of this is whole-of-government. And that uh, export, if you will, is incredibly valuable. And the case I would give you is in the case of Mexico. The Mexican energy, this is a, something that Bob started when, when he was in the Energy Bureau. Uh, the Mexican government had come to Bob and to the Energy Bureau to explain that they own 100,000 public buildings in Mexico. And if they want to move to more energy-efficient buildings and save some money, how can you do that? What's the type of standard? How do you finance that? And we talked about here in the United States, we have an energy savings performance contracting mechanism that without any additional US dollars, you can actually use the savings to then pay for the upgrades. And the energy team within the Mexican government was really interested in it, obviously understood what that was, but was not getting any buy-in exactly from what you were mentioning, from their GAO equivalent or their GSA equivalent or their OMB equivalent, uh, their treasury and finance ministry. So we said, why don't we, earlier this year, go to Mexico with a SWAT team of the whole of government, uh, including public-private sector. We also Mm -hmm. brought some uh, think tanks and companies with us to make the case to say why the U.S. government has gone in this direction, why our federal buildings are moving towards more energy efficiency, how much money we're saving, I think it's 3.8, uh, in terms of contracts identified, and then $9 billion in savings uh, down the road in terms of the savings that come off of uh, the energy e- efficiency upgrades we've been making. So the business case is clear, the economic case is clear, but the energy team within Mexico couldn't get the attention of the relevant ministries. So when we came down with the same, the right alphabet soup, it forced them to put their alphabet soup on the table. We made the case, and now, as a result of that workshop, the Mexican government has created a task force to now start to move into this space, and we're expanding this with Israel and Canada and under the North American Leaders Summit, uh, the trilateralization aspect. So that's just an example of you know our convening power has been a great way to encourage this whole government approach from our partner countries which as part of that conversation, we're talking about the NDC. We're talking about these commitments that were made and how these actions are tied specifically to in furtherance of those actions that are being made so that those who are really focused in a narrow silo of the policy understand it's part of a broader mandate and a broader mission that come 2018 will be reevaluated in the stop-taking process under the Paris Agreement. So that's just one example of of how we're trying to pursue that through our own uh, efforts at home. On the the ambassador's question, uh, this is exactly the the reason why Secretary Moniz and the U.S. government created the Mission Innovation. Uh, Mission Innovation is a a global commitment to double uh, research and development into these new emerging technologies so that a 10, 20-year horizon, exactly when these technologies need to move in, the R&D is there collectively by the global community to to see these technologies come to fore. However, I also want to make sure we focus in on the technologies of today. So one thing that Disney wasn't raised, but we're excited about, is battery storage. And with all the things we talked about today on the panel, the one question that's out there is we don't know what's going to happen with battery storage. You have the Teslas and Elon Musk's of the world that are pursuing really innovative work on battery storage, but that truly is the game changer. It's a game changer also in terms of how we view energy systems. Instead of having a base load and then a peaking system and the intermittent Mm -hmm. renewables on top, Mm -hmm. if you actually had true storage and with all the new data platforms that are out there by various companies on how to create larger balancing regions, you now have a system that can be, you know, arguably with the right mix, 100% renewable without having to go down a traditional fossil energy path. Again, that's not, we're not there yet, but the technologies are starting to get there and these breakthroughs are happening uh, faster than one can think, so much so that the State Department actually put in place a Silicon Valley hub. Mm -hmm. Uh, DoD was obviously well ahead of the curve on this one. They have some, but they have bricks and mortar in Silicon Valley, but now State and USAID also have somebody there to track what's happening out of really an innovation center of America to make sure that as those things are coming along, we're factoring that into some of our foreign policy planning.
1: It's interesting just to piggyback on your point about um, innovation can be a game changer of a, of an, of, that we don't understand. I think that battery storage issue and changing what is a traditional generation to transmission to distribution sort of grid. That can also help get at that other Achilles' heel that Bob mentioned, which is how to fix this distribution issue and the revenues issue. So there's. Oh, right. I should
3: probably answer that third question. If you like. Right. So then yeah. the distribution, long term PPA, and currency hedging. Uh, at least in the case of India, long term PPAs come up. Currency hedging has definitely come up the task force tackled three areas that I mentioned. And now that those are starting to come to a close, we're actually now in the process of talking about task force expansion, and actually a couple of firms have raised both the currency hedging issue and long-term PPA uh, issue with us. And so we're looking at that now. Obviously our treasury department has been the lead on broader currency hedging writ large, not just the energy sector sliver. Uh, And so we've seen proposals coming in from various players on what we could do in a project risk currency hedging proposal, and so we're looking at that now. Uh, but, you know, and I think in India, they're already doing it in rupee denominated. You know, currently there's many deals already happening in rupee denominated deals, and so we're looking at why companies are doing that, what are the risks that they're seeing, whether or not you move to a dollar denomination, and working with the Treasury Department, who's doing a much more macro analysis of where we might go. But that is a, you know, it's a real-time thing in terms of, our task force expansion, as we look to 2017, uh, would welcome, you know, your engagement. Like, like I said, we have other firms that are participating in this, in this conversation of where we would go on that. But also part of this expansion is actually discom reform in India. India has the Uday, Net, Uday plan in place, which is supposed to get at distribution company reform, but they're going to need some support on exactly, I mean, their distribution companies are in incredibly mm-hmm. dire shape. And so again, we're looking at what are the types of tools and vehicles we can work to strengthen Uday, to make Uday more effective uh, as they go into the distribution piece, because that really is the linchpin, frankly, to all of this.
1: Thanks, Melanie. Okay, we're out of time, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. I want to thank Bina, Lexi, Jacob, Press Team, Events Team for all their help putting it together. Thomas Friedman said once that if it isn't boring, it isn't green, but I really am starting to think that It's not about it being boring, it's just that it's super technical and everything is pretty interrelated. And we are unpacking that just as the political will to really address these problems is coming together. Be on the lookout for further events and reports that Bob's gonna work on as he applies the strategy to specific countries and thematic themes. Um, And thank you again, again especially to our panelists. And uh, have a great rest of your Friday.